Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to the fifth episode of Heavier Than I Look, which is a podcast dedicated to healing, recovery, and storytelling. My name is Kira Russo, and I am your host. It is a rainy Sunday morning in South Bend, Indiana, and I personally am a huge fan of rainy Sunday mornings. So it was really nice getting drizzled on walking uh, to the studio today and getting prepared for this episode. So as I said before, and as I will say again, this podcast is an outlet to discuss the intricacies associated with disordered eating and body dysmorphia, and it is aimed to empower survivors, educate listeners, and foster conversations surrounding eating disorders and body dysmorphia. And it will attempt to redefine each space that we comprise through introspection and reflection. In honor of Weight Stigma Awareness Week, today's episode is dedicated to anyone who is fighting to end weight discrimination, whether in healthcare, on social media, or in their own homes. The National Eating Disorders Association's second annual Weight Stigma Awareness Week brings attention to such issues, including weight hate's contribution to the development or worsening of eating disorders. For anyone who is not aware, weight stigma is the bias or stereotyping of a certain person because of their size. In a future episode, we will discuss how diet culture aggravates weight stigma and discrimination. But for now, I wish to applaud all of those at NEDA or elsewhere who are supporting body inclusivity in this movement. As promised, this episode of HTIL will explore eating disorders through a cultural lens. How have eating disorders been viewed and acknowledged by our ever-changing culture? And how are eating disorders portrayed and understood today? Culture is kind of this umbrella term, and it's understood to encompass all patterns of knowledge, art, beliefs, and behavioral dynamics that are shared by a certain group of people. Eating disorder culture is thus all the patterns of knowledge, art, beliefs, and behavioral dynamics that result in a certain treatment or grasp of eating disorders. And as we explored last week, the history of eating disorders are complex and generally reflect the time period that they emerge within, as culture is time-reflective and largely time-bound. We've seen how specific medical knowledge can influence the interpretation of eating disorders in mainstream culture, and mainstream culture is the most dominant beliefs or values held by society at a given time. So we saw this with psychoanalyst Dr. Hilde Bruch, who published her findings surrounding eating disorders in hundreds of articles during the 1970s, and consequently rates of both anorexia and bulimia increased within the United States. Despite pioneering research and discussions surrounding eating disorders, much of her research has been disproved or altered significantly to reflect the changing significance around eating disorders. A more positive example of comprehensive study within the eating disorder world is that of the Minnesota starvation experiment, as we learned about last week. And this one-of-a-kind study comes out of the 1940s, and it's a critical and instrumental piece of research researched using the understanding and treatment of eating disorders, especially that of bulimia, anorexia, and binge eating disorder. And this study is even used today in the treatment of eating disorders. And then we've also seen how religion can influence the presentation of eating disorders. Known as anorexia mirabilis, many female religious figures and saints 
such as St. Catherine of Siena, would attempt to echo the suffering of Jesus by enduring voluntary, self-inflicted pain by starving themselves. However, this harmful behavior often led to malnutrition and health complications, even resulting in death. It's clear that eating disorders, in addition to the biological, neurological, and psychological definitions that are attributed, can be defined culturally. An eating disorder may assume different cultural meanings based on the social cultural climate that they emerge within. And today, eating disorders tend to move away from psychoanalytic thought or religion and are instead primarily motivated by a thin ideal. This thin ideal is not at the center of all eating disorders, yet most eating disorders of which we view and research today are motivated by that thin ideal and by a fear of fatness. And it's something we will discuss further today, especially how this thin ideal is perpetuated by the mechanism of media. And when we talk about media, I am referring to the broad means of communication that exists in our society. So we have the internet, we have publishing, we have news, we have photography, we have film, and these are, you know, just some of the broad means of communication that we all engage in, you know, on a day-to-day basis. And we haven't really done a comprehensive look at how the media influences public reception with eating disorders, and this is something that today's episode is devoted to. And this is also something I'm particularly particularly interested in, as this podcast is a form of media in and of itself, and is something I hope to discern more within my desired career. Media, including film, television, and others, all of which that inform pop culture, undoubtedly entertain comprehension. And as we welcome the digital age of today, consumption of media becomes more and more inbred in daily life. Our behavior and thoughts are informed because of our media consumption. This is useful, yet it can also be dangerous. Media can drive messages that are truthful, accurate, positive, in which case media can be seen as useful, or the media can drive an exclusionary, unhealthy, and misleading narrative, in which case it can be dangerous. And this is especially true when it comes to eating disorders. Our social environments, so including our family, communities, friends, can contribute to our understanding of eating disorders. Media, as a social construct, also contributes to our understanding, perhaps just as much as other social environments, given its demanding presence in our digital age. And this episode will grant it the iterative, sophisticated inquiry that it deserves. Our culture is body-obsessed. Our feelings of worth are dictated by the bodies that we inhabit. We are preoccupied with our physical appearance, and our thoughts surrounding our bodies become more and more the ruling factors of our lives. Regrettably, these thoughts are largely negative. We live surrounded and plagued by body dissatisfaction, which can impede upon self-esteem and confidence. Our culture is body-obsessed. And the body that we are obsessed with is a thin one. 
Within Western societies, thin is the ideal. And women are especially affected by this. This is not to say that men are not affected by a thin body image, but there is less of a social emphasis on male body weight and shape. The image that our society advertises as perfect and desirable is one of a thin woman. There are heightened levels of pressure to pursue thinness, which can result in disordered eating. And although eating disorders are not wholly products of our society, because of the prevalence in disordered eating throughout historical societies, of which may not have glorified a thin ideal, a thin body in our society that our society chases today has really focused and grounded our understanding of eating disorders to include a prevalent criteria, which is the fear of fatness. And it's also important to note that this ideal of thinness is not as prevailing in specific subcultures. So such as that in the African-American community. Many non-clinical studies have demonstrated that African-Americans generally have different attitudes surrounding body image and perhaps might be more accepting of larger bodies. This is not to say, however, that African-Americans are immune to eating disorders. In fact, this is one of the many misconceptions of eating disorders, that individuals other than thin white women can't or won't have eating disorders. This is false. In actuality, many people of color in general who have eating disorders faced a whole host of additional obstacles that white patients won't have to, specifically with regards to diagnoses and treatment. The experiences of people of color who have eating disorders deserve much consideration. So we're going to return to this conversation in many other episodes. That's a promise. And despite this difference in body ideal in different racial communities, westernized cultures overall do praise thinness. Our own body image is informed by the bodies on display in advertisements for aesthetic purposes and on the screen, which has come to kind of govern our lives. And in this way, the media, which again is the broad means of communication, including the internet, publishing news, photography, cinema, etc., media informs our culture. So if we only see thin bodies in the media, our cultural beliefs will shift to value thinness. The heightened focus on the female body actually began in the 1960s with increased publications um, and models and advertisements. And consequently, ever since then, we have seen body discontent on the rise. In every single corner of the internet, you can find research and surveys and studies that demonstrate that with the rise of the digital age, the rise of body dissatisfaction is correlated. And this is not to say that the presence of the media causes body discontent. Instead, it's that the presence of a thin ideal in the media may be correlated with body dissatisfaction. Which also speaks to a common truth about humanity. We are social creatures. Humans are social creatures. And thus, we are hardwired to compare 
and situate ourselves among others. This comparison can be very detrimental to our own body image, especially when we are looking at media advertisements with enhanced or seemingly perfect women. From the 1970s to the early 1990s, messages surrounding a body curriculum emerged. And this is when we started to engage in formal learning and informal exchanges that became integral in our own assessment of our bodies. So this curriculum is referred to as biopedagogy or body pedagogies, which is the loose collection of information, instructions, and directives about how to live, what a body should be, what a good citizen is, and what to do in order to be healthy and happy. Body image disturbance and maladaptive behaviors started to rise, which then we will see leads to an excessive concentration on eating, can lead to social withdrawal, and can lead to very severe obsessive thoughts and behaviors in relation to the body. And then we see in the 1990s a grunge, thin kind of waif look hit the markets and appeared in advertisements. Kate Moss, who exists in a smaller body, was the pioneer of this body shape. And one of her most famous quotes is, nothing tastes as good as skinny feels. If that is not an indication of distorted thought surrounding our body image and an unhealthy behavior in relationship with food, then I truly don't know what is. <laughs> and although Moss is no longer an avid model in the industry, other companies, specifically lingerie brands, have continued her legacy, picturing incredibly thin women who supposedly represent reality. And these advertisements and these marketing strategies that specifically young girls, many impressionable young girls engage in, can become really unsound. And the media clearly has an inaccurate portrayal of women and the unrealistic expectations that advertisements publish. And it's not a problem of there being thin women pictured in the media. It's a problem that that is the only image that we see. And that image is declared as being the most desirable and the most wanted and perfect. And that is the image that hounds us. And it's every single day you see that image, whether on your phone, whether, you know, looking at a billboard or even on screen and in film and TV, those are the images that are perpetuated by the media. And despite increases in the actual body size of, of women, our media has continually sought to depict a smaller ideal body size for females. And then body dissatisfaction thus results because of the discrepancy between a female's actual body size and the ideal size which is influenced by images in the media. So again, it's not a problem that there are thin people and thin women 
in the media and being pictured. It's a problem with the messages that are aligned with that image, that are manipulative and exclusionary and really rather unhealthy. Um, I want to make clear, I'm not saying that we should totally get rid of any thin person who is in the media or on screen, but we have to be more inclusive of all types of bodies and all types of shapes and, and all types of people to reflect the changing culture that we have and the changing body sizes that we have today. And our relationships with our bodies and therefore our sense of selves as embodied become increasingly mediated by commercial media. As body dissatisfaction stems from media manipulation, that's when we see the emergence and spread of eating disorders in the United States. People have become preoccupied with managing their appearance in a context where individuals and institutions reproduce sex, race, and body inequalities under the guise of aesthetics, personal taste, desirability, self-care, health, and choice. And everyone can be affected by this. And teenagers can be most severely affected, specifically teenage girls. Because during puberty, their bodies become the sites of vulnerability, constraint, and scrutiny because of the media. Also, interestingly enough, one thing that I found in my, in my research was that the changing role of women as achievement-driven may contribute or be correlated with the presence of eating disorders. And this is something we've seen in history as well as we, as we track eating disorder emergence in history. And in this way, eating disorders can be a means for women to cope with the conflicting demands of attractiveness or maintaining femininity in addition to success. And weight can present a controllable factor in a frustrated lack of power or control. Also interestingly enough, Patriarchal society has subjugated women to a culture of thinness. In fact, weight culture stems from the evils of racism and sexism. Sorry, diet culture stems from the evils of racism and sexism and disproportionately targets women. Diet culture, according to Christy Harrison, who is a certified intuitive eating counselor and host of the podcast Food Psych, is a system of beliefs that worships thinness and equates it to health and moral virtue with the notion that a shrinking body is correlated with a growing status in society, which can result in a hypervigilance and hyperawareness surrounding eating and body image. This is especially harmful to women, trans folks, people who exist in larger bodies, people of color, and people with disabilities. Because health, health has become synonymous with weight, which leads back to a disordered thought around food. And we're going to talk about diet culture a little bit more in depth in another episode. Um, but just 
as a preface so you guys are aware, diets are not successful. I think it's something like 95% of diets fail. And when we talk about failure, like the failures is weight gain or not losing weight, which I don't personally view as a, as a failure. Um, and many people in the non-diet movement don't view as a failure, but that's how diet culture decides whether or not you've succeeded or failed, is whether or not you've lost weight or not. Um, in fact, many diets, I think it's something like two-thirds of diets, the the individuals actually end up like gaining more weight or gain, like gaining the amount of weight that they lost back and returning to the same body or gaining even more weight after the diet. We're going to talk a little bit more about that stuff in the future. But just so you guys know, dieting often leads to weight cycling. And weight cycling is actually pretty harmful because your body is like in a constant state of distress. And this is not to say that gaining a couple pounds here and there and losing a couple pounds here and there is, is harmful because that's not and that's actually normal. But weight cycling, this continual going back and forth and, and, and starving your body can harm your relationship with, with food and mind in your body. Because if you think of dieting, it's basically depriving your body of certain foods, certain you know meals, and our bodies are not hardwired to understand that. Our bodies are meant to nourish us and help us survive and when we introduce a restriction to the objects that literally ensure our life which is food our body our body's like what it's you know it's it's chaos it's this state of distress that you're forcing your body into which again results in in the failure associated with diet culture, which is weight gain. But as we can see, as a culture, we value weight, shape, and size over well-being. And we've become numb to the daily statements and thoughts associated with our socialization in a dieting culture. Like I said before, the non-diet intuitive eating movement is something we're going to talk about further in a subsequent episode. I'm actually reading right now um, this book called Intuitive Eating, which is this new movement that, you know, confronts the diet culture that we see in our society. And it's, and it's fascinating. So we're going to talk about that a little bit more in a subsequent episode. Um, also, something interesting that I found in my research is that eating disorders may be less culturally specific than we orig- originally thought. And can also exist instead as a cultural change syndrome. So as we've talked about a couple times before, acculturation to Western ideals of beauty and body size is increasingly recognized as a powerful impact on eating disorder development, especially for adolescents who are in the midst of establishing their individual and cultural identity. Eating disorders are sensitive to culturally specific locations of development. And although they are not culturally bound, they are culturally based. 
and the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, should reflect this in future editions. Subsequently, prevention and treatment of eating disorders must also reflect to cultural competency in which broader options are presented for self-image. So overall, let's, let's adapt. <laughs> that's, my, that's my call to action. Let's adapt. So now let's, we're going to take a little bit of a closer look at eating disorders in the media. And generally, EDs in the media are used as a tool to highlight the vanity and self-absorbedness of an individual. We see this in the cult classic Mean Girls. So Regina, the villainous teenage girl, becomes obsessed with losing weight because of her preoccupation with her physical appearance. We also see this in Clueless, where Cher calls herself a hypher and disciplines herself from eating. We also see this in Gossip Girl, where Blair engages in bulimic behavior, yet is never diagnosed nor treated. Although these are all fictionalized accounts of eating disorders meant to be marketable and digestible by a wide public audience, they can become incredibly harmful to our perception of eating disorders. And this is something we had talked about before and where media can be useful and it can also be dangerous. And in this case, and in these cases, it is dangerous because it is exclusionary, presents this, this really misunderstood conception of eating disorders and can be very harmful. And it's also important to note that media existing as useful and media existing as dangerous kind of ex- exists on this spectrum. So certain, certain things can be more dangerous than others and certain things can be more useful than others. And generally in our society, we do not have a completely useful tool, completely, you know, strays away from all danger presentation of eating disorders. Um, but that's something we're going to talk about a little bit further. Eating disorders are also fetishized because of the thought that this this implicit self-control, this willpower, and the supposed physical gratification that results from such. In this way, eating disorders can be glorified so as to encourage others to engage in disordered eating and practice similar behaviors. Our culture exclusively celebrates thinness. Yet this becomes all that much more dangerous because eating disorder behavior and thought are mirrored on the screen in an encouraging and reassuring manner. We can also talk about the sharing of an eating disorder within our public figures, which sharing an eating disorder is is not easy in any case and in any setting with anyone. But it can help to destigmatize and de isolate the experience of those suffering. So, by giving a voice to eating disorder survivors, the public may be more informed about the varying experiences in addition to recognizing the prevalence of them in our society. Public recognition of eating disorders are perhaps most influenced with public figures who can share their own stories. So, in the 1980s, we have Diana, Princess of Wales who shared her experience with bulimia. She said it was, quote, like a secret disease. You inflict it upon yourself because your self-esteem is at a low ebb. 
and you don't think you're worthy or valuable. You fill your stomach up four or five times a day, some do it more, and it gives you a feeling of comfort. It's like having a pair of arms around you, but it's temporary. It's a repetitive pattern, which is very destructive to yourself, unquote. The list of public figures who've shared their experiences with eating disorders include, and this is a long list, <laughs> Paula Abdul, who is now a spokesperson for the National Eating Disorders Association, NEDA, Victoria Beckham, Troy and Belisario, Russell Brand, Dove Cameron, Emma Chamberlain, Kelly Clarkson, Lily Collins, Sally Field, Eminem, Jane Fonda, Lady Gaga, Audrey Hepburn, Janet Jackson, Jamila Jamil, Elton John, Sean Johnson, Billie Jean King, Zoe Kravitz, Demi Lovato, Zayn Malik, Jeanette McCurdy, who hosts her own podcast entitled Empty Inside, Sophie Turner, Carrie Washington, Oprah Winfrey, Taylor Swift, and Karen Carpenter, who tragically passed away from eating disorder complications at the age of 32. This list is not exhaustive, but already you can see that eating disorders do not discriminate. There's a whole host of racial communities represented on this list, a whole host of genders represented on this list, of ages. So you can see that eating disorders do not discriminate. They do not exist solely among thin white women. That's a misconception. Eating disorders portrayed in pop culture are an incredibly contested issue. In future episodes, we will talk more in depth about specific cases of eating disorders in pop culture, whether they are depicted in film, television, or literature. And this is something I'm actually especially excited for because you guys know me already. Like, I am really interested in how eating disorders are presented in culture through media such as film and television. And there are only, you know, a handful of cases in which eating disorders are presented, but I think... We're going to do in future episodes specific case analyses of each of these of each of these examples. So we have um, Marty Noxon's To the Bone, which premiered at the Sundance Film Festival in January of 2017, and it's currently on Netflix. And that also stars Lily Collins, who had mentioned before. We have Meg Haston's novel entitled Paperweight, which is a young adult novel chronicling an eating disorder survivor as she navigates in-person treatment. We also have eating disorder portrayal in singular or coupling of television episodes, so we can see it in Glee, we see it in Dance Academy, we see it in Full House even. And we also hope to share information about educational documentaries on eating disorders and analyze them on whether or not they are useful or whether or not they are dangerous on that spectrum that we had mentioned before. So we have Lauren Greenfield's Thin um, of 2006, which was also featured at Sundance Film Festival, yet premiered nationally on HBO. We have Superstar, the Karen Carpenter story, which was um, distributed in 1987 and chronicled 1970s pop star Karen Carpenter's public struggle with anorexia, which tragically took her life. We also have Angela Golner's 2017 comedy Binge, which tells the director's real-life struggles with bulimia. So these are just a couple of the examples of what 
we are going to look specifically in depth at in later episodes. But I just wanted to give you guys a little bit of a teaser at those. Um, And important to note before we, in future episodes, talk about these really specific cases of eating disorders in pop culture. It's important to note that eating disorders generally do not lend well to screen material. It's a disorder based on distorted thoughts surrounding one's own image. And because image is and visual is central to film and television, portraying a non-triggering, non-glamorizing eating disorder story becomes that much more difficult. And there's also differences in the portrayal of specific eating disorders. So for example, anorexia can be really easy to glamorize on screen, which is not a good thing. While bulimia's portrayal is harder to sell to audiences because of the brutality of the compensatory behaviors involved. Eating disorders are also a silent disease. They inspire social withdrawal and have high rates of relapse, both realities of which are hard to capture in a marketable and digestible sense within the general public. And these are challenges I hope to tackle one day in the media's depiction of eating disorders. Vocationally, I want to destigmatize eating disorders in the face of the public and hope to educate on the experiences of all of those who suffer and hopefully recover from eating disorders. And for people who have suffered, it can be an incredibly cathartic and, and empowering experience to see on screen our own suffering and triumph. Filmmakers and novelists, however, should be aware not to glamorize eating disorders nor to minimize the suffering of survivors. Triggers got to be accounted for in full within the screenplay and the portrayal of one struggling with an eating disorder has got to be honest, right? Because there is a danger in the singular frame of the portrayal of eating disorders. In addition to parlaying an untrue or manipulated understanding of eating disorders, which again is dangerous to public consumption and public understanding. Eating disorders are an illness of solitude, of paranoia, of longevity. And eating disorders are also, also affect a wide variety of people. All races, genders, shapes, ages, religions, ethnicities, sexual orientations, weights. And the screen and our media has got to reflect this. So that kind of concludes our discussion of culture as an ideological factor in eating disorders. And obviously this is an ongoing conversation and not one that we could capture just within an hour of our show today. But at, in, the, in, every show, in every episode, we do like to highlight a specific piece of art or insight from someone who has suffered from mental illness um, to amplify the voices of those recovering. So one of the amazingly talented individuals I have met since trekking into the eating disorder recovery community on Instagram is a poet named Ananda, who writes about her struggles and recovery from an eating disorder and amenorrhea. So Ananda has even published her own book. She openly shares 
her healing of her relationship with food and subsequently healing her relationship with herself. And this collection of poems gives a candid look into the thoughts of an eating disorder survivor and was thrilling to read as one myself. I wanted to share her work with you today as it is unquestionably worth hearing. Her collection of poems entitled Poems of Recovery, A Young Girl's Path to Recovering from an Eating Disorder and Amenorrhea can be purchased on, on Amazon. And one of her poems entitled Take Care of Your Home really resonated with me and I wanted to share it with you guys today. It reads, And as I touched my skin, I realized this is the body I will be in. This is my home. This is a short yet all-important message of learning to respect and honor our bodies. The relationship between our bodies and ourselves is the longest relationship you will ever have. It lasts your entire life. And we have to learn to accept our bodies and to heal this relationship. Thank you, Ananda, for letting me share your work today. You are an inspiration. If you guys are interested in hearing more of her poems, feel free to purchase her poetry collection on Amazon. And also you can follow her on Instagram, at Poems of Recovery. We are going to continue this discussion next week of eating disorder culture by looking at it in a more specific location, which is eating disorders on college campuses. This was actually a topic suggested by one of our Instagram followers. And it's especially interesting considering this podcast is broadcast from the University of Notre Dame. And also interesting because 86% of our audience on Spotify are between the ages of 18 and 22. So very interesting topic next week. Definitely tune in next Sunday morning at 9 a.m. if you want to. And then I also have some guest interviews in the works, so stay tuned. And then finally, just so you guys know, all new episodes of HTIL will be uploaded to Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts by 11.59 p.m. each Sunday night. If you do miss the live broadcast, you feel free to, you know, return to old episodes by visiting those sites. And if you would like to listen to my own story of anorexia, binge eating, and body dysmorphia, you can listen on any of those platforms. And please consider sharing the podcast with family, friends, and those who you feel could specifically benefit. If you are interested in learning more about eating disorders, please visit the National Eating Disorders Association, NEDA, website at nationaleatingdisorders.org. And if you or someone you love might be struggling with an eating disorder, know that you have my full support in recovery and considered seeking treatment. Disordered eating has ruled my life for nearly six years, and I didn't think anything would ever be able to come in between that. Treatment did, and treatment still does. And if you are in a crisis situation, please contact NEDA's helpline by texting NEDA to 741741. HTIL has its very own Instagram and Twitter accounts, so if you would like to suggest your own podcast episode topic or interact with the podcast further, please feel free to follow on both platforms 
at Heavier Than I Look. And if you are interested in sharing your own story as a feature on the show, please direct message at Heavier Than I Look on Instagram or Twitter. Do not be afraid to reach out. We would love to hear from you. Finally, let us no longer wonder how little space we can comprise, but instead wonder how to make that space one filled with love and sympathy. Goodbye for now, guys. See you next week.